Good morning, Redeemer. I can't even describe how nice it is to hear the liturgy in my mother tongue. <laughs> Polish is a funny-sounding language. <laughs> but um, I just wanted to summarize, in a sense, the trip before I preach, because it will explain why I've chosen the text for today, which is Zephaniah. I know, you're wondering what? Zephaniah? Zephaniah? It's there in the Old Testament. Zephaniah chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 14 to 17. So it was a very surreal experience in, in, in this way. One, the, the universal church is a glorious and beautiful thing that spreads over the whole earth, and it's, it was amazing to see faithful Christians in some part of the world you never even thought of, and they're just like us. <laughs> They worship, and they love their spouses, and they disciple their children, and they fight the culture, and they, you know, they're just like us. It was also interesting that hallelujah in in every language is the same, and uh, it was also very strange. My wife and I were very pleased with this, is, is you recognize it. You recognize the creed when the creed is being said. Amazing grace sung in three languages simultaneously is, is kind of hard to describe. It's glorious, a little piece of heaven. Sorry, I'm a little tired, a little emotional. The other thing that I was not expecting is how many questions I got about our local church. They were, they thought that I, it must be a church of hundreds, 500, to be able to send this father of six, well, not only to support a father of six, but to send him uh, to the old world to, to do all this work. And they just had so many questions. How long has the church been there? 40 years? Oh my gosh, are the founders still there? Yes, some of them are. In fact, Doug and his son and his grandkids, one of the first families of the church, all attend, three generations, they were overwhelmed by the fruitfulness themselves of this small church they had never heard of. And um, a a product, myself, of this church, I came here as a baby Christian. Uh, I wasn't even married. I'd only been baptized for 11 months (laughs) at that point when I came here. And now I'm the pastor. And this this filled me with gratitude, all all of these questions. Because they were like, how in the world do you take a non-believer and turn him into a pastor? This is just unheard of over there. Um, and, and all praise and glory to the Lord Jesus. And, and, and to testify in that sense, to belong to such a fruitful church, um, was glorious. So they send their love to you and their gratitude to you for sending us over there. Um, and, and at the end, after eight talks on how to raise children faithfully, I thought that I would give them like a a redeemer message to sort of wrap up the whole thing, to express why I think this church is such a fruitful church. And and when I was writing this there, I thought of all of you. And so I thought, well, I will go home and tell them about themselves. So so the message that I'm going to give today, I've learned from Steve and, and Dean and Byron and Joel and men in this church all the years that I've been here. And, and that is what I'm going to preach about. I'm going to preach about the God that you serve as the source of all fruitfulness. Because from the cheap seats on the other side of the world, you guys are an abundantly fruitful group. Um, and you are the local church in this area doing a lot of good things. And the universal church is also out there doing good things. So with that being said, let us turn to Zephaniah chapter 3. I'm going to specifically talk about verse 17. And I'll read that for us now. It says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you 
by his love. Now, the Bible presents us with the way of hope, the way of hope for outcasts, for losers, that doesn't depend on pretending to be something other than what we actually are. And again, that is the message here. Losers and deadbeats and the broken and the sufferers and the sinners are welcome here. And we're not going to pretend that you're anything other than those things, but, but welcome and have a seat and let us tell you some good news. That's what the Bible is about. That's what this church is about. The Bible recognizes with clear eyes the awful truth about sin and the evil that infests the human heart, that inhabits our society, that inhabits each one of us, the evil that cries out to be destroyed. It wants divine judgment. It is a cancer in this world. It doesn't exist in the world itself. It exists in each human heart. Now, as the prophet Isaiah noted, we have unclean lips, and we dwell in the the midst of a people of unclean lips. And I would add that we are a people of unclean hearts, living amidst a people of unclean hearts and unclean hands and unclean minds. This is what we know. But that is not all that we know. This reality that we are such a broken and fallen people, is devastating for those who then come and stand before the holy and living God. Yet at the same time, the Bible celebrates an incredible love that stretches down into the sinful world to rescue you, to rescue me, to rescue those whose lives are littered with profound and repeated moral failure. We are sinners and sufferers. But is that the end of the story? No, there is a great physician. There is one who came and suffered with us, for us, so that we would go on living with him in glory for eternity. We know what this world, right? We know what's in man. And so did Lord Jesus. And yet he came and he rescued us and saved us. The Bible tells us about this merciful God who scoops us up into his arms. He wipes away our tears. He wipes away the disastrous record of our sin and failure. The Bible tells us about a gracious and condescending God who stoops to rescue and restore us, broken and distraught as we are. Now, all of this, what the Bible is about, is found in a little book by the prophet Zephaniah. Now, the early part of the book is full of bad news. We we heard a little of it in chapter 3 today. God is going to wipe us off the face of the earth. He is going to destroy. He is going to burn. He is going to wreck unless he saves us, unless he does something. So in in this book, Zephaniah, he's telling us all of the things that we deserve that are going to happen to us. And yet at the same time, it closes the book with hope, with grace, with, with this description of the reality in which believers live. And what is that reality? There is a God who sees us. There is a God who knows us. There is a God who sings over us, who rejoices over us. Now, the last book, or the last part of the book of Zephaniah, is so unlike the first part of it that actually scholars think that it was added on later by somebody else. And and I think that's brilliant. It's so unlike the beginning and the judgment that human beings deserve that they think it couldn't have possibly be written by the same person. But you and I know differently, don't we? Because we know our Bibles. We know the bad news. We know how evil we are. We know how broken we are. We know how undeserving we are. And yet, what do we know? 
we know that God condescends to love us. He stoops. He comes. He enters in. He dwells amongst. He rejoices in you and me. Now, this last part of Zephaniah, I'm going to read it in full because it is so unlike the rest of the book. And this is, this is what I love about the Old Testament. You find pockets of pure gospel. Pure gospel. This is what it says, verses 14 to 17. It says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now, does it say maybe? Does it say if? No, it's a promise like we we talked about in the covenant series. He says, this is what I will do. And the problem is we don't believe him. We don't believe he's going to do this. We don't believe he's doing it now. We, We don't believe it's possible that he would do such a thing. Sing over us. The, the maker of heaven and earth stands over you and sings. Can you imagine how silly that is? And yet, what does he say? He says that is exactly what he does. The book of Zephaniah ends in almost unimaginable joy. The final section is, un, is unexpected, and it is startling in its richness and in its promises. The change from judgment to doom... Uh, judgment and doom to grace and hope is so sharp that it's hard for scholars to believe it was written by the same person. Now, what happened to judgment? Right? The book is very clear. Here comes this judgment, but then here I'm going to give you a little hope. Now, I have a question for you. How many of you have experienced the judgment in the first half of the book? Did your city get burned to the ground? Were you thrown in a trash heap? Are you leprous? Right? Are, are, is, is your whole family line utterly and forsaken and destroyed by the Lord God? No, what happened to all those? Where did all of that go? And that's what I want to talk about today. The reason that we are sitting here, the reason that he lives amongst us, the reason he rejoices over us, the reason that he stands over us singing is because he took upon himself all of, that, all of that punishment, all of that judgment that your filth deserved. And, and until we understand this, and until we accept it, and until we say, yes, this is what I believe, this is my hope, this is the reality in which I live, we will do nothing for the kingdom of heaven. We'll do nothing for our spouse, we will do nothing for our children, we will do nothing for the world. Earlier this week, when you were sitting in your living room discussing amongst yourselves how to deal with the varying circumstances that you're going through, the trials and triumphs, the uncertainties, the confidences, what was going on that you couldn't see? What was going on that you couldn't see? Now, I know you're just like me. You sat in your living room and you thought, how, what are we going to do about this? 
Or can you believe that happened to us? What does this mean? What about that person? Man, they need a lot of help. And what was the reality that you couldn't see that was going on while you were sitting there in your living room? Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. You didn't hear the singing, did you? You didn't see him in the midst. But was he there? Was he singing? Do we believe the word of God or don't we? Now, now, go back. Go back, and there you were with your family, having these discussions, trying to determine what you were going to do. And how much different would it have been if you would have stopped? You know, God is here with us. God is rejoicing over us. God is singing over us. We are not just objects that he, that he knows exists. We are objects in, over which he delights. Now, how would that have made the conversation different? How would you have reacted differently? What would you have said if you would have thought of this? And this is the reality that we have to accept. This is the reality that... that puts everything into context, that gives us hope, that gives us understanding, that gives us wisdom and joy. God is present with you. He is here even now. And you don't leave him when you leave here. He goes with you. Everywhere that you go, he goes. Everywhere that you are, he is. He's not distant. He's not unconcerned. He's not remote. He is here with you now, and he is with you everywhere you go. Paul says of God in Philippians that he is at hand. Now, this is, again, something, if you've been here for any length of time, I love it. The Poles loved it. Everyone hold up your hand. Hold it up. We're not Gnostics. Look at it. He's closer to you than that. That's a metaphor that helps us understand. God is at hand. But what does the scripture tell us? He's even closer than that. He dwells in your very hearts. Now, where did you go this week without your heart? Where are you going to go this week without it? Where everywhere you go, it is. And wherever it is, he is. But he isn't just here. I have kids. I'm present with them. My presence isn't always as calming as I'd like it to be. It's not always as rejoicing, as much rejoicing as I'd like it to be. But we have a God who isn't just close. What does it say about him? The maker of heaven and earth rejoices over you with gladness. He exalts over you, yes, even with loud singing. This is as humbling as it is exhilarating. To be something that God not only notices, but values, is truly to lift us beyond any degree of glory that we can imagine. Can you think of anything more glorious? You tell me that he's aware of me, and I'm like, wow, that's pretty amazing. You tell me that he's not only aware of me, but he actually thinks I'm something of value to him. I can't even describe how glorious that is. Now, this delight, it says, quiets us. What does that mean? Well, it means it calms us. It gives us peace. All, the, all those the voices in your head, no, not demonic voices, just your own voice, that little one that will never shut up, not at 3 p.m., not at 3 a.m. What about that? Why did you say that? What did you do that, do that for? What are you going to do about that? 
What does that person think of you? What do I think of that person? That little voice, he quiets it. Why? And how? He, he overcomes it with loud singing. That's what I want you to imagine, right? This is, sometimes we're riding in the car and my kids won't shut up in the back seat. Yes, I said it. They won't shut up. And so I just turn the radio up as loud as it will go. And you know what happens? Everyone stops talking. Now, when the voice in your own head will not be quiet, I want you to imagine, because it's true, that the Lord your God is standing over you singing, and let that singing quiet the voice. The chaos in the world. The competing voices for your attention. Let his voice rise over it all. His love quiets us. This love of joy and delight, it conquers us. His love conquers fears. It conquers wills, emotions, brokenness, rebellion. This love is a sanctifying power, a power of conquest, a power of change, ennobling and empowering everyone it enters and rests upon. His love for us steadies us. Now, we see this, all of this that I'm saying, in the, it's embodied in the life of Christ. We see it in the life of Christ. This very verse, this God who's present, this God who rejoices, this God who is singing in a loud voice, we see this reality in the life of Christ. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. And this is what it says. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. There is his Father present. There is his Father descending to him. There is his Father singing over him, announcing over him, proclaiming over him in a loud voice, What? Delight! Now, this is my, one of my favorite sections, because what has Christ accomplished up to this point? Nothing that they've even written about. I'm sure he was up to something, right? He didn't just wander around for 30 years doing nothing. But at this point, they haven't told us anything that he was doing. Why? Because it wasn't ministry yet. His ministry hadn't started. At this point, Christ has accomplished nothing. And the father doesn't come to him because he's accomplished something amazing. The father comes to him and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Why? Because he is his son. It's not because of what he's done, but because of who he is. And that, my friends, is the reality in which you live. He's come to you. He doesn't stay away because of what you've done. And he doesn't come to you because of what you've done. He comes to you because you are in his son, Jesus Christ, and he is delighted with you because you are in his son, Jesus Christ. You are a precious and beautiful thing in his sight. Not because of what you have done or not done, but because of who you are. And who are you? You are in Christ. You are his brothers and sisters. You are co-heirs with him. You are in him at the right hand of the Father. And for that, he delights in you. It's not because of what you've done or not done. The father loves the son because he is the son. Now, immediately after this, what happens? Jesus goes on and lives a happy and fruitful life with no pain, no sorrow, no trouble, no difficulty. No. That's not what happens. 
Immediately, he's driven into the desert. Immediately, he goes without food and water. Immediately, he's attacked by, by the, the devil. Well, I thought God was pleased with him. God was pleased with him. What is this? How do you call this pleasure? No, see, the pleasure that the father expresses to the son quiets him and steadies him and prepares him and makes him qualified to now go into the desert and get things going. He wasn't ready before then. The son wasn't ready to leave the house to conquer the front yard. The son was not ready to leave the house to go, into the, go to college. The son was not ready to go and get started until he knew that his father loved him because he was his son. That's parenting. That's parenting. Right? <laughs> we worry so much about teaching them the rules. We worry so much about spanking them correctly. We worry so much about this, that, and the other thing. But when we send them into the world, we, we have to send them knowing that we are with them and that we are pleased with them simply because they are ours. The father doesn't prevent the son from facing danger. The father doesn't prevent the son from going hungry. He doesn't prevent him from being thirsty. He sends him, what? Into danger. Because that's what man was made for. Job says it. Man was made for trouble as the sparks fly upward. How do I know? The very first man is put into a garden that's very good, and there's a dragon. Well, the son... He's standing there, coming up out of the water. This dove descends. The voice descends. The Lord is with him. He is one with the Father. Now, go into the desert and fight a dragon. The pleasure that the Father has in the Son is what prepared him to do it. It's what steadied him to do it. It's what made his sword arm so strong and so steady and so valiant. We read in Nehemiah, Chapter 8, verses 10 to 11. Then Ezra said to them, Go your way. Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so there is Jesus. He's going to get started on his ministry, and the joy that the Father takes in the Son is the strength to go out and do what he is called to do. Right? So there you are. You've got, you got to get up a little earlier than the kids because you've got to make sure breakfast is ready. You've got to make sure the clean, clothes are clean. You've got to make sure hubby gets out the door. And you've got all this work to do. You've got all these dragons to slay. You got, right? And your coffee is going to get cold. And you're going to be hungry by 10 o'clock. And you think, how am I going to do this? Well, you think of this. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I, before, I got up this morning, and I haven't accomplished a single thing. But you know what? The Father is here with me, and the Father delights in me, and I can go out and do whatever I have to do because of that. In fact, it's the only reason I can. Jesus is not alone when he goes into the desert. He's not hungry because he's been fed with what? The pleasure of his Father. He's not alone when he faces the, the dragon. He's not alone when he's victorious over the dragon. His father is with him. His father delights in him. Now, the father is the son's because the son is the father's, and vice versa. And this is what they meant in the Heidelberg Catechism. What an introduction to the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism, really? A 16th century document written by some Belgians? I may have been in Europe too long. 
But what is, how does it start? These guys sit down, they're like, you know what, we've thrown off the yoke of the Catholics, and let us now describe the Christian faith. Let us, let us give the basics. And what's the first question that they ask? Something about superlapsarianism? Something about the inner Trinitarian covenant in you know, eternity past? No. They don't even ask questions about the Catholics and their goofy hats. What's the first question they ask? What is, the only, what is thy only comfort in life and death? <laughs> now, having, if, if, if I was alive at the time and I had been raised in the Catholic Church and I pick up this new book by these guys from Belgium, I'd be like, well, let's see what they have to say. And I'd be like, wait, what? Haven't, what? What is my only comfort in life and death? And that's shocking enough, but then you get to the answer. That I am not my own or that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own. That's my comfort. But belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who, with his precious blood, has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me, that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation." And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Now, that is a catechism answer. What are the writers assuming by asking about comfort? Why comfort? Comfort? What about hope? What about love? What about, you know, I thought hope, faith, and love, and the grace of this is love. Why do they ask about that? Fruit of the Spirit, maybe? I don't know. Lordship of Jesus Christ? They begin the summary of the Christian religion by asking you what comforts you. What are they assuming about you by asking the question? They're telling us something about their their view of mankind simply by asking this question. The catechism begins with a much more serious question than mere creature comfort, though, right? They're not talking about eating popcorn while you watch a movie. Right? I, I, this maybe is weird for you, but I can't sit at a movie theater and watch a movie without eating dots. It's like I can't, I'm not comfortable. I'm like, oh, you know, it's, I've been doing it for 30 years now. I can't not do it. And then when I go and I don't have the dots, and I'm like, no, this time I'm not going to do it. Then I go to the counter and I buy dots that are twice as expensive. And I'm not comforted otherwise. Now, is that, is that the comfort you think they mean? Mike Loss eating dots, watching Top Gun? No. That's most certainly not what they mean. What is your only comfort in life and death? The catechism begins with a much more serious question. The German word that they use, because in fact they wrote this in German, is Trost. You're welcome. I don't know why that matters, but that's the word. It's Trost. And it means something more than comfort, actually. The word in German is closer to certainty, protection, solace. The first question sets the theme for the whole catechism, the whole Christian faith. The Heidelberg Catechism is about applying the gospel to all of life in the, con- in the context of the existence of death. We're going to live, and we know death is waiting there for us at the end. And so what comforts you in that world that, in which you live? It opens with the most important question that will ever face. What enables you to endure life and death? Is it that you read your Bible? Every day. You know, I am so comforted. I read my Bible every day. Mm. 
Is that what comforts you? That you attend church, that you give to the poor, that you have a good paying job, that you haven't committed any of the, you know, really big sins, that your kids are receiving a Christian education. You're like, okay, fine, I'm good now. Raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, everything's fine. Is your comfort that your marriage is stable, that your mortgage is covered? Are these the things that comfort you when you consider living and dying? We live in a world where we look to find comfort in possessions and pride and power and position, but the catechism teaches us that the only true comfort in this world is that we don't even belong to ourselves. You're not your own. And that, that is what comforts you. You're like, well... You mean that I, I uh, what do you mean exactly? You are not yours. You don't even possess yourself. You think you possess your mortgage. You think you own your spouse. You think you own these kids. You think this church is yours? No, none of this is yours. You're not even yours. And this is a message that I've heard in this church now going on 20 years. Right? How could Dean, after 16 faithful years, be like, here you go, Mike. You're in charge now. I got to go. How does somebody just turn something over like that? How, when our children are going to go into the world, do we just say, okay, well, you know, goodbye. Right? I mean, I say I'm raising my children so that they will not always be with me. <laughs> it's, it's true. But this is what I'm talking about. Like, we don't own what we even think we own, including ourselves. You don't even own yourself. And that is supposed to be the thing that, com- that comforts you in the middle of the night when you're worried about everything. When you're sitting there having that conversation with your spouse, what are we going to do about this? And your spouse says, don't worry, you're not even your own. And you're like, oh, I'm so- I am so comforted. We can endure suffering and disappointment We can face death without fear of judgment, not because of what we've done or what we own, but because of what we do not possess, namely our own selves. I'm not responsible for this in one sense. I'm worried. Why am I worried? I can't can't change the color of my hair. Well, you can through chemicals, but what happens? It doesn't stay that way, right? Can I change anything permanently? Can I build a house that will never fall? Can I build an engine in a car that will never die? Can I make anything permanent? Can I do anything? No, I, I am completely helpless. But, you know, there's this God with you. There's this God rejoicing over you. There is this God singing over you. There is this God who's present and pleased, and he owns all this, he, including you. And so why are you worried? And, and as soon as you start thinking that way, you're like, man, I could do anything. I could do anything. And you can. Right? You could do the impossible. Romans chapter 14, verses 7 and 9. For none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. We belong, body and soul, to the Lord Jesus Christ. His agenda is our agenda. His eternal life is our eternal life. His status before the Father is our status before the Father. His power is our power. His love is our love. His goodness is our goodness. His resources are our resources. And all the lack of comfort that we experience in this world is because we do not believe this. We still believe that we're our own. 
Oh, no, this is my problem, and I have to fix it. This is my life, and I will decide what I'm going to do. These are my children, and I will determine what sport they play. And then what? How much comfort do we have at the end of that conversation? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And about this, Calvin comments, Christ then is the source of all blessings to us. From him we obtain all things. But Christ himself with all his blessings is communicated to us by the Spirit, for it is by faith that we receive Christ and have his graces applied to us. Do you want his everlasting grace? Do you want his everlasting life? Do you want his everlasting security? Do you want his everlasting strength and power and goodness? If you want it, you can't have yourself also. That's what he said, right? If you right, Lay it down and come with me. My yoke is light. Your yoke is... What? What do you mean your yoke is light? You're carrying the sins of the world on your back. Say, yes, but I have a father who's with me, and I have a father who loves me, and I have a father who's here with me, even now, singing. He's so pleased. He's so happy. I can do anything because he is with me. You're like, okay, okay, all right, now I'll lay myself down because that sounds like a pretty good deal. You are no longer defined by your sin. You are, no lo- you are defined by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your identity. And do you think identity matters in this age in which we live? And we wonder where the world gets its identity problem from. You are not your own, you're Christ's. But we walk around thinking, no, I'm not Christ's, I'm my own. And then we go into the world like, why does this guy think he's a girl? Why does this guy have an identity crisis? Then you go home and you're like, man, what am I going to do about this problem? Pray? Nah. Let go? Nah. Let God? Nah. I'm going to do it. Look at those guys out there, though. Trans. Those trans people. What we must do is deny ourselves. That's what Jesus said. Now, what does that mean, to deny yourself? To renounce yourself is what it means. Now, remember when Peter was asked if he knew Jesus? What he did was renounce Jesus. He said, I don't, and, and think about what he said. I don't know who you're talking about. Never heard of him. Jesus? You mean Jesus? What name? What? I, I missed that. I don't know him. Never met him. Have no idea where he's going, what he's doing, what's happening to him. I have no idea what you're talking about. When it comes to denying yourself, that's what he wants. He wants you to say, Mike Kloss. Don't know Mike Kloss. Never met him. Mike Kloss, what does he want? Don't know. Never even heard of the person. What is he going to do later? No idea. Where did he come from? No idea. I don't know who you're talking about. Now, Jesus Christ, I can tell you about him. I can tell you what he did. I can tell you where he's going. I can tell you what he is doing. Mike Kloss never heard of him, though. That is what he wants from us. But how hard is that? I think I've heard of that person. You know what they really want right now is a sandwich. Can you get him a sandwich? How about a beer? You know, he really wants to go to Hawaii next year. Let's talk about that. You know, he's got this problem at work, and I'm really stressed out about it. No, God, right? All that stuff he says, I don't know what you're talking about. He has no problems because he has Jesus. He has no worries because he has Jesus. He doesn't know what he's going to do about that, but he doesn't need to know because Jesus knows. That is what we are talking about when we talk about renouncing self. First Corinthians 3.23, you are Christ's and Christ is God's. 
Make that into a t-shirt. You are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, fallen man has a problem with reality. Think of some of the profoundly contradictory things we are told. The secular furors demand that women be given safe spaces, and yet they allow transitioning men, identifying as women, to use locker rooms and bathrooms. This is one thing I don't understand. I have to provide safe spaces for women, but then you're going to let dudes go in there and use the shower with them. I'm a little confused by what you mean by safe space. They demand that we affirm that gays are born this way, and yet we must also affirm that gender is ultimately fluid. Well, they can help themselves. Well, he can help himself. Well, which is it? Can't be both, because that's illogical. They insist on women's rights, and yet condescendingly state that there's no such thing as a woman. Okay. I'm not really sure what to do with this. The profound identity crisis of the modern man begins with us. We have got to understand that our, what, what we are called to, what we do not deserve, is to put ourselves completely away and take upon ourselves the Lord Jesus Christ and all that is his. Christians try to make sense of their own lives and motivations, striving to justify and explain by contributing their behavior to all kinds of things. We act like we aren't Jesus's and we fall into sinful rebellion. We take our eyes off of Jesus when we look at our circumstances, and thus we are consumed with fear and frustration and doubt. Like Peter walking on water in obedience to Jesus's command. Remember this? Did Jesus say, walk on water? No, he said, come to me. Come. And what what coming required was walking on water. Do you remember this? Again, this is, this is old hat for us. This was the Mark series. Peter is standing there, and he's not told to walk on water. He's told to come. And in order to obey, he's got he's to do what is completely illogical, walk on water. And as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he could do it. But as soon as he looked away from Jesus and he looked at the storm, he was filled with fear, and he sank into the water. There is Jesus on the starboard side. And he's looking at you right now, and he's saying, come. And you're like, well, dude, I can't walk on water. And he's like, don't look at the water. In fact, don't look at the storm that's raging all around me. Look at me. Look at me. If you look at me, you obey. And you know what you'll find? Is that you can walk on water. We have a new agenda. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. Did you have a different plan for this week? You did, didn't you? If I come to your house and I look at your chore chart, if I look at your menu plan, you've got all these things written down, all the stuff you're going to do. Did you stop and think about the fact that this week your job was to love people as you have been loved? Well, I've got to go to work. Are there people there? Well, I got to go to the grocery store. Are there people there? Well, we got to start homeschooling. Are there people there? No, we have all kinds of other agendas. And we worry about all these things happening. But what does Romans 8 say? Romans 8 says nothing will separate you from him. Nothing. And then it li- what, what I really like about Romans 8 is it lists all kinds of terrible things. And you're like, wait, I might endure all of those things. Death. Dismemberment. Right? It has a list of terrible things. And, you're like, and, and everyone's like, oh, yay, at the end, nothing, none of, nothing is going to separate me. Yeah, but look what you might actually have to endure to test the fact that whether you believe you're going to be separated from him. 
And I'm not going to read the list because I'm running out of time. But you should go read the list in Romans 8. And you think, whoa, wait, what? What now? Romans 8.32, this is how that beautiful chapter ends. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You're like, oh, does that include tacos? Does that include dental coverage for my children? What, is it? what do you mean, all things? God's like, no, 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 stop worrying about all that stuff. He's given you his son. That was a down payment. You're like, well, a down payment. I thought that was the whole thing. Oh, there's more. Oh, okay, cool. Tacos? I get tacos, right? No. Stop worrying. You will, because you've received him, receive all things. This is what we have to preach to ourselves. This is what we have to preach to one another. This is what we preach to the world. John Calvin, and this is, I I can't even, it's so beautiful. We are not our own. He says, we are not our own. Let not our reason nor our will therefore sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us therefore not set as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own. Insofar as we can, let us therefore forget ourselves and all that is ours. We are God's. Let his wisdom, uh, his wisdom and will therefore rule all our actions. We are gods. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. Our comfort comes down from heaven and overshadows us. It indwells us. It leads us. It renews us. It is our source of joy, our solace, our protection. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 and 2, comfort, comfort my people. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism understands, what do people need? Comfort. What do the people next to you need to stop being jerks? Start listening to you because you know how to figure out all their problems? Or do they need comfort? Isaiah understood it. Some Belgians understood it in the 16th century. Now, I love Isaiah 40. J.H. Bomberger, don't, don't worry about who that is. This is what he had to say about Isaiah 40, though. Possibly no Bible chapter has exerted a greater influence on the world's leaders than Isaiah 40. Handel, who wrote the Messiah, begins his Messiah with the words, Comfort ye. Luther poured over it in the castle of Salzburg and led to his transformation. John Brown read it in prison at Harper's Ferry just before the Civil War. Oliver Cromwell went to it for help in time of his storms. Daniel Webster, of dictionary fame, read it again and again and again when he was crushed and broken in spirit. Tennyson called it one of the five great classics in the Old Testament record. Isaiah 40. After you read Zephaniah, read Isaiah 40. What do you need? What does your wife need? Your husband need? Your children? What do your neighbors need? What does this world need? Comfort. And what gives us comfort? That you, we are not our own. We're not our own. That there is a God who exists and and he dwells with us. And is he just standing there watching? No. He's rejoicing over us. He is singing over us. He is delighting in us. This comforting love prepares us to go and fight dragons. The dragons in our hearts and the dragons in the world. John 16, 33. Jesus says, I have said these things to you. 
here today, I have said these things to you. That in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. He is here with you now. His voice is, deli- is, is singing over us now. He sees you. He knows you. He delights in you. He knows that there's tribulation in the world. <laughs> Don't worry about that. He knows there's tribulation in your heart. Don't worry about that. He knows that there is uncertainties. He knows that there are things attacking your faith and attacking your heart and attacking your obedience. And he says, keep your eyes on me and you will walk on water. Don't worry about the world because I have overcome it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. One of the greatest sermons I've ever heard preached by Covey in this church was on that verse. It was transformative. I thought, oh, I've never heard this guy preach. Dean's going to go out of town. Covey's going to fill in. And he preaches this beautiful sermon on comfort. And I'd never heard comfort described this way. And what makes us fruitful? What makes us fruitful at home? What makes us Redeemer Church? This idea that we are comforted by this God, that he doesn't just tell us what to do, that he isn't just present. He comforts us. And this comfort is that he is, he is ours and we are his. And we don't belong to ourselves. This, this is what we need. This is what your family needs. This is what the world needs. In the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your presence here with us, for the delight that you take in us, for your goodness, for your mercy, for your grace. We pray, Lord, that as we go from here, that we would indeed renounce ourselves, that we would devote ourselves to you, heart and spirit, mind and strength, and that we would, Lord, go and walk on water, that we would be comforters, that we would declare this message, and that we would continue to be fruitful to the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray, and amen.